Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, 35 through 38, and 41 through 43. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, nor have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, good to see so many of you. What a blessing that when uh, so many of our leaders, for whatever reason, uh, are out of town all on the same weekend, that we have so many young uh, people. You might, if you're a visitor, you might think, is there anybody uh, in charge of anything that's over the age of 35 at that church? Uh, because of all the youth that have been on the stage, I'm grateful uh, for so talented uh, a group of young people in our church. So those of you who filled in, thanks. We continue in a series. Uh, through the Gospel of Luke, and we've kind of turned the corner in this Gospel to to begin to contemplate, it's what Luke desires for us to at this point, what it means to follow Jesus. And so we've come to this well-known passage, well-known and well-loved by many of you, Uh, and I know this because I've listened to you and your struggles with being anxious and how the passage challenges you. And so over the next six months, so from now until in the fall, over the next six months, we're actually going to come back to these words, do not be anxious about your life, not only this morning, but two more times, once today, and then again in the summer, and then again in the fall, which must mean the Lord thinks you've got a really big problem with anxiety. I don't know. Or maybe it's just me. I mean, I, we're, I'm so anxious that a lot of times, I've told this, uh, you know, my experience is, is that I'll, I'll sometimes find myself being anxious, and sometimes it takes me up to five minutes to figure out why I'm anxious. 
It's just there, and I can't even, you know, it's just, but what this, heart, what this passage does is it cuts to the heart uh, past all of the outward manifestations of obedience or disobedience to the very heart of the matter. I mean, I, I heard somebody say one time, can you imagine legislation uh, being passed against anxiety? We'd all go to jail. And yet here is God's word, God's commands, God's laws coming to us in, in, in these words from Jesus. Do not be anxious. And so because we're going to do this three times over the next uh, few months, this morning I want to really focus on the central imperative of this whole chapter. We're going to come at it three different ways in those three times. So if you here today and you think, man, you didn't really get to the most important stuff, well, I promise we'll come back to some of those other things. But this morning we want to look in chapter 12 at the focus of the central imperative which is what we find in verse 31, and you look there with me, where Jesus says, Do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, but instead seek his kingdom. So what does it mean to seek the kingdom? That's the question that's before us this morning, and we're going to deal with the issue of anxiety in the process of taking up this question because they're related, but, but not the inner emotional state of being this anxious frame of the heart, we're going to talk about anxiety this morning more as a way of life, an anxious way of living. Because anxiety is, it's a way of life, and and it's the main obstacle to doing what Jesus has commanded us here to do, and that is to seek first his kingdom. And so, as we talk about seeking the kingdom this morning, uh, here are the three things that I'd like for us to look at. I'd like for us to see first what the kingdom is. What is the kingdom? Jesus tells us to seek the kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom? Secondly, once we get an idea of what the kingdom is that we're to be seeking, what does it mean, what does it mean to seek it? What's the kingdom and what does it mean to seek it? And, and, and if you look at the title of the sermon, what we're going to say is that to seek the kingdom means to not be anxious but instead to be ready. To not be anxious but ready. So what is the kingdom and what does it mean to seek it? And then lastly, how does the gospel help us not to be anxious but instead to be ready, which is the very thing that we need in order to do the things that Jesus has called us to do. So those are our three points this morning. What is the kingdom? What does it mean to seek the kingdom, and how does the gospel help us to do that? It's all here in this passage. So let's begin together this morning with just this first idea of if we were to heed Jesus' call to seek the kingdom, we have to know what the kingdom is. So what is this kingdom that Jesus describes here? Okay, let's begin there. Now the phrase, kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God in the New Testament, simply refers to the realm of God's rule. It is called the kingdom of heaven because it is the physical manifestation of, of God's perfect rule in heavenly places that is now breaking into human history in time and space. The phrase brings together the idea of God's sovereign rule over all things, which issues in human flourishing, community flourishing. And so the phrase in the New Testament, it's the equivalent of the Old Testament word shalom, which Cornelius Plantinga, in a book that he wrote, defined so brilliantly, so simply, shalom being just the way things ought to be. It's the way things ought to be. So the kingdom is the way things ought to be. It's very simple. Now, if that's the kingdom, then what does it mean to seek the kingdom? And, and, and I want to answer that question just by saying this, that it is first a conceptual thing and then it's an intentional thing. And so conceptually, let's start with that. If, if, this is, if the kingdom is the inbreaking of God's rule into concrete form in human society for the flourishing of people and of community, then what does it mean to seek the kingdom. Well, conceptually, Tim Keller has written a book about work called Every Good Endeavor, but it's the subtitle of the book that is the lesson. And so the book is called Every Good Endeavor, and the subtitle is Connecting Your Work to God's Work. 
Okay, God's work. That's the kingdom. So in Jesus, the kingdom of God is breaking into the world in concrete ways, beginning in individual lives like mine or yours, as people embrace this spiritual movement in repentance and faith. And then what happens is the formation of social and political structures that express God's reign and rule and cultivate human flourishing. Now, scholars debate this. But that is my understanding, that's the, and I'm the one talking, so that's what we're going with this morning, okay? It, because it's significant, and if, and if you're abreast of the theological debates about these things, that would make sense. But just for all of us, it is, the, it is an embracing, an individual embracing of the movement of Jesus in the gospel through repentance of faith that creates social and political structures that express God's rule and cultivate human flourishing. Now, if you take the words Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. What is it? As it is in heaven. That your will be done. So wherever God's will is being done, wherever there's obedience and submission to his authority and rule, the kingdom is there. It is coming into concrete, physical expression there in that person who utters that prayer and then lives according to it, or the people who do so. And the result is always human flourishing. So Jesus came to establish God's kingdom in response to sin, didn't he? I mean, this is what I mean conceptually. We have to understand the backstory. The kingdom is God's counter-movement to human rebellion and sin. And what's sin? Sin is the rejection of the very things that we've just described. It's the rejection of God's rule and authority. And it produces, instead of human flourishing, it destroys human flourishing and produces chaos and breakdown. So if the kingdom of God is, is his intent and design for all that he has made, then sin, a metaphor we could use... Sin is human vandalism, like spray painting, a beautiful brick wall of a subway station. Sin is the ruining of shalom. It is paying no heed to the architect's design and defacing the beauty of what he has made. And so to seek the kingdom then, for you and I, in the context of sin's defacing of it, means uh, to paint over the vandalism and restore the beauty hidden beneath using whatever job you have, using whatever money you have, using whatever resources and gifts you have to paint over the graffiti of sin and bring out the beauty of God's design for the world and human community and to produce flourishing for people. And you do that first by obeying God's will, both personally and then in community, and then working for human flourishing, doing justice and righteousness, no matter what your work is. See, it's conceptual first. Then no matter what your work is, whether you're a minister or a businessman or a stay-at-home mom, that your work becomes conceptually the instrument for something greater, for connecting what you're doing to the bigger picture of what God's trying to do in the world. That's the conceptual part. But now the intentional part. Jesus says, seek the kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, it's seek first the kingdom. And that is seek the kingdom above all things. Make the kingdom... Make the kingdom why you do what you do. Connect those two things. Take the what of your life and connect it to the why of Jesus' kingdom and make obedience to God and human flourishing your mission statement no matter what you spend your days doing. Right? Whether you're a businessman or a church planner or a stay-at-home mom or a professional athlete, that the why of that work in your life would be your mission statement no matter what the details are of what you spend your days doing, that your mission statement would be The obedience to God's commands for the sake of human flourishing. Seek the kingdom above all things, but also seek the kingdom before all things. That is, as a matter of 
priority and focus. We are finite creatures. We only have so much time and energy and money and other resources. So the question becomes, what gets the very best of you and what gets the leftovers? Give your very best to the parts of your life, the roles and the commitments in your life, to those things that most clearly and most directly connect to God's work in the world. Man, I wish I had time for illustrations. Because we could sit on this all day, but I don't. We need to keep moving. But that is, that is the, the idea of the kingdom that Jesus is introducing here. That in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, God's rule is breaking. Isn't this good news? In light of all the things that Justin prayed. And all, all of the evidence of the pain and the sadness and the hostility that our world is captured in. That in Jesus Christ, the rule of God continues to break into our world. Until he makes all things new. So secondly then, we have to drill into this a little bit more and we have to ask, so what does it mean to, keep, to seek this kingdom? What does it mean for us to give our lives in the pursuit of that very thing that we've just described? Or conversely, what, it, what keeps us from seeking the kingdom? Because that's what this passage is really about. And we see the main obstacle to seeking the kingdom. It's here in verses 22 and 23. It's an anxious life. So Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Life is more than food. Life is more than fitness. Life is more than family. Life is more than work. Life is more than vacation. Jesus goes on, verse 30. For all the nations, the pagans, seek after these things. But your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. So two contrasting ways of life here. The first is... What the nations do, that word really means pagan. It's a pagan way of living. And so this is the person who starts with food and clothes and such things and the demands of family and work and all of this and hopes that at the end there will be a little time left over for other things, but there never seems to be. But then in contrast, there's the Christian way. And the Christian way, according to Jesus, starts with God and leaves the rest to him. And it never puts God and God's promises in the rear view. Another way of saying what Jesus is getting at would be that the great obstacle for all of us, for seeking the kingdom, is the daily pressure of doing life. You see the verbs here where he begins to describe how, um, how the, the, the lilies of the field and the birds of the air live, but in contrast to the way we live, we get busy with the daily pressure of doing life, of sowing and reaping, verse 24, and storing, verse 24, and toiling, verse 27, and spinning, verse 27, all of those words descriptive of an anxious life. It's interesting. The word in the Bible here for worry or anxiety etymologically means literally, it, means, it just means to be distracted. So we get anxious. Or an anxious life, you know, it comes when deadlines or fears, or I'll be honest with you, for me, simple busyness, the pace causes us to lose our focus when the cares and pleasures and riches of life, Luke 8, wrench our attention off of God and onto our circumstances. That's the dilemma. Just the busyness or the deadline or some mega fear that we have causes us to take our eyes off of Jesus and put them onto our circumstances. And so you get... You get the word, um, you get the, the story in Luke 10 where Jesus comes to 
the house of Mary and Martha and the two sisters who are very different, if you remember the story, and Mary immediately begins to sit at Jesus' feet and listening to his teaching, but we're told, but Martha, and this is a great line, this is such a great line, Jesus, Martha was distracted with much doing. And that word distracted is the word anxious. Martha was distracted with much doing, and so Jesus tells her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled. You are, I like, there's one translation, you are distracted and you're fussing over so many things. Come here. Sit down. And that is the picture of anxiety. Distracted and therefore beginning to fuss over so many things. Anxiety is unbelief. It's little faith. You see that? Oh, you have little faith, Jesus says here in this passage. In other words, it is bottom-up living, not top-down. It's, it's being overwhelmed with what's going on around us so that we can't even lift our eyes up to be reminded of God in heaven and his coming kingdom rather than starting with our theology and viewing our circumstances through the lens of what we know to be true of God. We start with our circumstances and they become the lens through which we view all of our life and that's where the anxiety comes from. What is it that, that, that the, the prophet says at the beginning of Isaiah uh, 40? Do you see that? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. What's, where is God? It's hard. What's God doing? Why is he not coming and taking care of me? Why does it seem that I'm invisible to him? And why is he just thoughtless about my plight? See, that's anxiety. Is God, you know, my circumstances are so tough that it must mean that God has removed himself from me rather than holding on to the anchor of my theology and what I know to be true of him and allowing that to affect the way I view my circumstances. But the irony here is this as well, that this, this idea of anxiety, this anxious way of living, is not just understood as by way of just being a distraction or um, by um, being unbelief. But there's a unique word here, verse 29, uh, in all of the New Testament where Jesus talks about worry there in verse 29. And that word, which is significant because it's so unique, means rising up. It means pride. It it's refers to the in, inner part of your life kind of boiling over and beginning to rise up. And I'm glad it's here because it can help us with our repentance. Worry is the fruit of pride, ultimately. Tim Keller said it so well. He says, it takes pride to be anxious. I'm not wise enough to know how my life should go. Worry assumes we're bigger than we are. It assumes we're omnipotent. omnipotent om, man, I can't. That was bad. Omniscient. I combined. That was a mashup of on omnipotent and omniscient. That's a new word. Omniscient. That we really do know thing, how things should be going. That we know even better than God. Worry is like an allergic reaction to a dose of human frailty and powerless. If you're anxious, if you're anxious, it's because you've come face to face with your smallness. And the reason you're freaking out is because you really do believe it's all up to you. We all really are that arrogant. We all really do believe our wisdom and our strength are sufficient to carry the day. And when, when we just have these brief moments of doubting that, that's when the anxiety comes in. Which is why worry is something we should repent of. You can't be full of worry and be seeking the kingdom. And so all of that about worry there. And the first pas- part of the passage really does show us how anxious living how getting distracted and fussing over the cares and riches and pleasures of this life makes us fruitless for the kingdom. 
But the second part of the passage is the corrective, and it's why I wanted to put these two things together here. Jesus says, don't be anxious, and then beginning in verse 35, he shows us a different way. Don't be anxious, be ready. Look at verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. And so there are three images there beginning in verse 35. Uh, He says, be dressed for action. Now, if you have an older translation, it might say, gird up your loins. What in the world does that mean? Right? That sounds not good. It refers to the act of taking these long flowing robes that ancient people would have worn, and you would tie them up in such a way that you wouldn't be encumbered by them. You could move around really quickly. You were ready to go, you know, so... You, you, when somebody was going to you know, serve dinner or something, they would tie up their robe so that they could be unencumbered and be ready to go. He says, be dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And this was so that if you had to spring into action in the middle of the night, uh, you could grab a lamp and you could get right to it. You wouldn't have to fumble around in the darkness and, and then get a lamp lit and take all of that time. You could be ready to go as soon as you were needed. And the third metaphor there is a servant waiting for their master to return from a trip. So all three illustrations are illustrations of readiness. Don't be anxious, Jesus said. Be ready. That's the, that's the opposite. Be ready. Sadly, I turned 40 uh, a few weeks ago. So, of course, instead of buying a red Corvette, I chose to do a weight loss challenge in the first few weeks of my uh, being in my 40s. And so my problem is not the exercising. I really do a pretty good job with the exercise. It's my eating habits, okay? So pray for me in that. But, but it's this thing I've learned that is the number one factor, the number one factor that decides success or failure for me, number one factor is preparedness. Uh, you have to, right, you have to go to the store and get all the healthy foods that you need, and then you have to cook them, right, at the beginning of the week. Uh, so that they're ready whenever you need them. Because, listen, I'm going to tell you, if I get to 11.30 in the morning, and I'm ready to chew my arm off. And if I'm not prepared, if I'm not prepared, it doesn't matter what it is. If you put it in front of me, I will eat the first thing I see. Right? But if I'm prepared, if, if I've got the food already made and waiting in the fridge, then I'm able to make pretty good choices. And success in spiritual things works the same way. You have to be proactive. If you wait until you're in the middle of it, and then try to react. It's too late. That's where, the, that's, that's, see, that's where anxiety comes from. You get into the middle of it, and then you try to catch up, and you can't. You need to get out in front of it. You have to be prepared before you go into the week, which is why Sabbath keeping is so important. You have to be pre- prepared before you get far into the day, which is why overwhelmingly, I wish it wasn't so, but overwhelmingly the people who have done the most for the kingdom usually had a very consistent habit of beginning the day very early in the morning by reading the Bible and praying. Just a sense of preparedness. And this is exactly what Isaiah is referring to when he says in Isaiah 40, 31, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Waiting upon the Lord is not a passive thing. It's a very active thing. It's actively preparing. It's being on the alert and at the ready so that when God shows up, when he begins to go to work, you can join right in. Anxiety is the result of too much of my will in my life. Can I say that again? Anxiety. And if you share with me this problem, this is the anxiety is the result of too much of my will in my life. So if you're anxious, it's because it feels out of control. You can't get in front of things and manage them with your will, with your gifts, with your resources. But listen, can I? Of course it's out of control. It never was in control. 
problem is that we get duped into thinking we can really be in control. And so the person who's waiting upon the Lord is the one who stopped trying to be in control and has started getting ready. And the difference is, is they spend all of their time getting ready. And then once they're ready, then they open their eyes and they wait. And wherever they see God begin to work, they join him there. And that brings us to the last thing that we want to talk about this morning. And that's how do you replace worry with readiness then? What is, what is, how does the gospel help us do this? What does Jesus tell us about our worry? What does he tell us to do with it? Uh, that transforms worry into readiness so that we can be a people who can join him in the mission that he's on in the world. It's so simple. It's so simple it would be easy to miss. So look back in verse 20, 22 and 24. Excuse me with me. In verse 27, Jesus says this. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, verse 22. And then verse 24, he gives us, he gives us what we're supposed to do about this. Consider the ravens, verse 24. Consider the lilies, verse 27, how they grow. See, that's the strategy for living without anxiety. Jesus doesn't say, here's what you need to do. You need to pray more. He says, think. Uh, we laughed as a staff. We're reading D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on spiritual depression, and he, makes a, a fra- he has a phrase, a line in that book. He says, Some, I, you know, a lot of my friends, I'm convinced, I, I think they'd be a lot better off if they pray a whole lot less than if they think a whole lot more. Pray less, think more. In a sermon in that, part, in, in that book, uh, he puts it like this. He says, faith is an activity. It's something that has to be exercised. It does not come into operation itself. You and I have to put it into, into operation. It's a form of activity. And then he goes on to describe this. He says, the first thing that you have to do is you have to refuse to allow yourself to be controlled by the situation that you're in or by your emotions. When you feel anxiety rising up, you have to take yourself in hand. That's his word. You have to take charge of yourself and not let yourself go. And I'll admit, this sounds so... This doesn't sound right to me, uh, except that I've, I've begun to do this in my own life, and I've learned that it really is key to part of the work, you know, getting the work done. You have, to, you have to fight and not give in. You have to take charge of yourself and say, I'm not going there. You know, I, I am of a certain stock where we just, you know, people in my family just wake up and we're grumpy for no reason whatsoever. Anybody else? Right? It's just a bad day. I don't know. I have no idea. What's the matter with you? I have no idea. Right? And what I've learned is, on those days, what I have to say is, no, no, we're, we're not going to do this today. No. And begin to talk to my, and manage myself. Fight, not give in, but that's not enough. He says, the next thing you have to do is you have to start to think. You have to remind yourself of what you know. You have to do theology. You have to begin to speak to your own heart. And isn't that exactly what Paul says the remedy in his letter to Philippians is. He says there in Philippians, we read it as a call to, as assurance of pardon. Rejoice, he says. Don't be anxious. Rejoice. And one of the things that Lloyd-Jones has said that stuck with me, he says there's a difference between rejoicing and feeling happy. Rejoicing is a spiritual discipline. You can do it whether you feel happy or not. You can't make yourself feel happy, but you can make yourself rejoice. Rejoice. Don't be anxious. Rejoice. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, he says. And that's it, thanksgiving. That's what Jesus is saying here in Luke 12. That when you feel anxiety getting the best of you, you have to stop and you have to begin to recount and consider all that God has done for you. Make a list. Present the evidence to your heart of God's love and faithfulness. That's rejoicing. That's considering. And Paul says the way to peace, not anxiety, is to control what you think about. 
And this tells us something about unbelief, doesn't it? If anxiety is unbelief, unbelief is irrational. That's where its power lies. Faith, on the other hand, is rational. It's content-based. It's, it matters what you believe, and it matters that you know what you believe so that you can use it, so that you can turn on your, ha- on your own heart and you can say, stop it now. You're distracted and you're fussing over many things. You know the truth. Anxiety is a distraction. And so the solution is focus on the greatness and the goodness of God. The solution is worship. Worry bows down to worship. Worry bows down to worship. And so we need to finish with that. See, anxiety is is seeing the problem, seeing the circumstances that's so troubling, the imaginary, for some of us, course of events Right? Or those that are concrete and unavoidable. They, may, you know, they feel concrete and unavoidable even though they're imaginary. We have to see these things. But then not... Um, well, anxiety is seeing only those things and then not being able to get beyond them. And so you, you, you begin to recount in your mind the problem and all you can think about is the problem and the problem and the problem and you never get beyond it. That's unbelief. And that's where the anxiety comes in. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says that exercising faith means that you see the problem... And you begin to think about the problem, and then here's what your heart does. You say, but, yeah, yes, that's true. Yes, these things I'm worried about, yes, absolutely. But God. See that? Just at the very end there. Yeah, okay, the problem, yes, I see it. But God, you add the but at the end. And so when the scary thing, whatever it is that's in front of you, whether it's real or imagined, you stare it down and you say, yeah, that's true, you know. That really is true, but... But, but, but God, and then you go on with your theology. So let's do that, okay? In the few minutes, I really need to be done so we can come to the table. But uh, in the few minutes we have left, let's finish by doing what the text does. Uh, because this is what the text does for us here. And so we ask this question, what is the theology that's here that can help us as we, as we try to uh, use this as ammunition against anxiety? And it's just this, and we're going to do these in rapid fire. What we learn of God here is that he is a powerful provider, that he's a generous father, and that he's a good master. He's great, he's generous, and he's good. So let's look at those three as we close this morning. Jesus says, first, consider the ravens, that they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You see how all of the emphasis there is on what God does? Ravens don't sow or reap or store, God feeds them. Lilies don't toil or spin, God clothes them. And so, therefore, my confidence should not lay in my strength but his. The possibilities of my life are not limited by my finitude, but are expanded upon the consideration of his infinite power and might. In other words, peace is not dependent upon being able to meet the challenge, whatever it is, in my own strength, and to overcome through my resources and greatness... Peace is rooted in his power and greatness and the promise of it for me, even in my weakness. When my strength fails, his never will. When I get to the end of all of my strength, it's not weakness that meets me there. It's his strength that meets me there, which is even stronger than mine. And he's great. So let me apply this. You know, it's a busy time for our church. It's a little bit busy for us as well. Here's this, this just in this... You know, we're trying to get Heart for Winter Haven underway with Brad Beatty. Uh, we are trying to plant a church this fall, and we're going to two services. Those are three projects that one of them would be enough to pretty much do us in. And we've decided in our infinite wisdom to tackle all three at the same time. 
And I can get very, very overwhelmed in that in the moment. And then I have to say, yes, yes, that is hard. It's going to be hard. But God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or even think according to his great power at work within us. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe he is great. But not only is he great, God is generous. He not only feeds the ravens, but he feeds them so consistently and so abundantly that they give no thought to where their next meal will come from. And he not only clothes the grass, but he does so so beautifully and so lavishly that the extravagances of the most indulgent of earthly kingdoms are outmatched. And that for grass that is here one day and gone the next. Why such extravagance and waste? Because he is an extravagantly generous God. He is a doting father. What is it Jesus says? Verse 32, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Good fathers do not hold out on their children. Our heavenly father is infinitely good, and so he is generous in his very essence. It's not just what he does, it is who he is. Generosity is intrinsic to his nature. It's his defining characteristic, outgoing love and generosity. From all eternity towards the Son, and now towards the entire creation, and especially those who through faith and repentance are adopted into his family. So like other ancient parasitic gods and goddesses whose power and life were dependent upon the service of their worshipers, whose magnificence is nothing but the glisten of the silver brought into their temples by their minions, Our Father's very self is different. His very self is found in giving, not taking. He is like a fountain. His very nature is about going out and sharing of his fullness with his people. And this is what Jesus means when he says it is our Father's pleasure to be generous. He does not do so begrudgingly. He loves to be generous. It is the natural overflow of who he is. Man, Ashley and I worry about our kids. We do. You know, are we doing the right thing? Are we providing the right, you know, the right experiences for them, the right education for them? Do we discipline them correctly? And it's easy to get overwhelmed when you have kids and you have as many of them as I do worrying about whether or not they're going to be okay. Are they, you know, you really do. It's, it sounds hilarious, but you really do. Are they going to be functioning adults when they leave my house? You know, <laughs> I don't know. I hope. You know, because, and, and, you know, and what you have to do is just, you have to stop and say, yeah, it's hard, yes, but, but, but there's a father in heaven who is committed to generously providing the education and life experiences and all that they need that I don't even know they need, and some of which I would probably protect them from if I could. He is generous. But there's one last thing, and it's the most wonderful thing of all, because it is the truth that activates his greatness and his generosity. It takes them from being an abstraction to being personal, and that is that God is a good master. He's a good master. Julian of Norwich, the 14th century mystic, wrote this. She said, some of, or he said, some of us believe that God is almighty and can do everything and that he is all wise and may do everything, but that he is all love and will do everything. There we draw back. And isn't that the trouble with the metaphor master? Verses 25, 35 and following, isn't it? This dominates the second half of the text. We hear the word master we immediately begin to picture the cruelty and barbarity of slave owners in the South 150 years ago. And that's what the, master, what the word master evokes in us. And that's why it's such a helpful image, because what this master does is so surprising. It's so shocking. It literally subverts our unbelief, because we learn Jesus is the master in the parable. Uh, and he, what he says that is that when he comes back, it will not be to punish. He 
It's coming back, but it will not be to bring the whip. No, look what the text says. Verse 37, truly I say to you, and by the way, when Jesus starts a phrase like that, it's because what comes next is really unbelievable. Truly I say, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. That's, that's, that's the translation of that. Truly, I say to you, when he comes, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and he will serve them. So here's the image. The master has been on a long journey, but he's expected home sometime during the night, so the servants were to be ready. And so whenever he got home, no matter how late, he would find the doors unlocked, he'd find the fire burning, he'd find food on the table, a hot meal and a comfy chair to sit in because he would be tired from his long journey. And it was the servant's job to make sure everything was ready for his return. But Jesus says that he's the kind of master who, when he arrives home late at night, uh, after a long journey, the very first thing that he does, after the tiring journey he's been on, is to gather his servants together and tell them to sit down so that he can serve them a meal. Is that crazy? That's unbelievable. He stokes the fire and he cooks the food and he cleans the dishes while they relax and enjoy themselves. Now at the last supper on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus was eating a meal with his disciples and an argument broke out among those dummies about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus turned to his disciples with these words. He says, who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And from John's gospel, we know that he got up and he dressed himself for service and he began to wash their feet. The master became the servant. And it was a physical parable of what he was about to do the next day when he would go to the cross to suffer and die, a sacrifice for our sins so that we might live. Truly, truly, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we have little problem with the notion that God is all-powerful or all-wise, but we draw back at the idea that he is all-love. But this truth, this truth, this picture of his humility and his love won't let us. It pulls us back in. So, And so does the opportunity to gather around this table this morning. So let me just say this. I worry about me most of all. My, most of my anxiety comes from the, the, the thought that I'm going to screw things up, that God won't be able to work past my mistakes and sins. Anybody else? And so faith for me means to say, yes, yes, you're pretty dumb. Yes, yes, you know, you, you are a sinner, but, but God is a good master. He does not bring out the whip at the first little screw-up. He does not punish me for my failures and mess-ups and leave me to myself. He serves. And so that line that I just was caught in that song of repentance this morning, out of myself, I come out of my self-centeredness, out of my worry about myself to dwell in your love. That's the opportunity before us this morning. Faith is logic, it reasons like this, but even in this we need help. And so we have not only the word, but he's also graciously provided us the sacraments. And in the sacraments, God speaks his truth to our hearts through a megaphone. So take your heart by the hand this morning and come to this table and say, see how he loves you. Don't be anxious. Let's pray, okay? Father, as we come and gather around your table this morning now, we do pray that you administer to our hearts we thank you for the provision of this meal uh, that is an aid to our faith. And so we pray that even now you would, in repentance and faith, grace us with those things uh, so that in repentance and faith we might come and profit from this meal that you have put before us this morning. Would it be, uh, would it be the cure to our sin, sickness, the worry that so cripples us? Would it be uh, the solution to our joylessness and fear?
so that we might be a people that go from this place uh, full of good fruit uh, that glorifies your name. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. We are a wilderness people uh, bound for the home that God has prepared for us. And so you would think that anxiety and worry would just be a way of life. It is of all of those who travel in the desert. But this meal and the, pro- and the gospel promise us Uh, And the promise of the kingdom of heaven is the promise that we don't have to wait until we get there to begin to experience all of those blessings. But then in in Jesus, uh, the very reality of heaven is broken into the world and we can enter into it now. That's the promise. Eternal life is not something that awaits us. Eternal life is something that is pushed back into our present that we can enter into through repentance and faith. And so if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your eternal life has begun, which means all of the promises that are ours on the other side of the Jordan when we finally reach our home are ours now as well, that he feeds us from his very body and blood even as we wander in the wilderness. So take heart and don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. He travels with us, and that's the promise of this benediction. And so receive these words in your heart by faith as the culmination of everything we've said this morning. Rest your life in them uh, and, and turn to him. Consider, consider the things he says in this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.